Early Saturday morning, reports began circulating that World of Outlaw Case Construction late model Hall of Fame announcer Rick Eshelman was missing. Later Saturday afternoon, Rick's son reported the news none of us wanted to hear. Rick had been found, but he had taken his own life. The racing community was shocked. Rick was not just a great champion for our sport. He had a profound effect on my life personally. My announcing career began in 1996 at Flag City Motorsports Park. That's where I started working with Rick, who became a great friend and mentor. If it wasn't for him, I may never have continued my announcing career, let alone start my own racing team. Flag City Motorsports Park, also known as Millstream, closed down shortly after the start of the 1999 season. I was back out of the racing biz until I received a call from Pan Hendricks in early 2000. Rick had recommended me to replace him at Oakshade as their track announcer as he was taking a new announcing gig at Eldora. Over the next few years, I became deeply immersed within the racing community, which I later learned is much more a family than a community. Rick went on to become the voice of the World of Outlaw late models and would still stop by Oakshade periodically on off weekends to visit. His down-to-earth and light-hearted attitude made him a popular and well-respected presence at whatever track he was at. That, along with his talents behind the mic, earned him a spot in the National Dirt Late Model Hall of Fame. When the mic was off, Rick had a never-ending supply of not-safe-for-work jokes that would lighten up the mood of a sometimes stressed scoring tower. The following was our last conversation with Rick Eshelman, an interview from August 18th of this year, just after his induction into the National Dirt Late Model Hall of Fame. Wasn't he at dinner last time? Hey, dude. Hey. Rick, Rick Eshelman. What's happening? It's Scott Hammer, Ron Miller, Hammerdown Racing Report. How are you? Great. How are you guys doing? Good. Hey, before we get going. Ron's got notes. I've got notes. I just, I just want to point that out. Growing up at Raceway Park, John Newding was the announcer, a fantastic announcer. My early racing, wow. my early racing, Howard Williams, Toledo Speedway and Flat Rock. Uh, then my friend Jack Pfeiffer, then Gary Lindahl uh, at Toledo and Flat Rock. Great announcers. Dirt in Northwestern yep. Ohio. Larry Jewett, sprinkled yep. with tonight's guest, Mr. Microphone, and my cohort, Scott Hammer. <laughs> Oakshade, wow. Oakshade Raceway, Mr. Microphone, Larry Jewett, Scott Hammer, Great announcers all. Out of all of those announcers, Rick Eshelman, my friend, you're the only one to gain national acclaim. Congratulations. I appreciate that, Ron. And as, as you know, it's a nice way of them telling you you're starting to get old. <laughs> <laughs> so wait, that's right. You're in the Hall of Fame at Sandusky Speedway. I are. There so, you go. Oh, this makes sense. Rick is so smart. Rick, I don't know about all that. Well, you, you taught me a lot when uh, we worked together down at uh, Millstream, or what was it, Flag City Motorsports Park at the time. Yeah, call it what you F- want. Uh, that, was, that was good times back then. <laughs> so what uh, what does it mean to you to be enshrined into the National Dirt Late Model Hall of Fame? I mean, how big a deal is that? Well, you know, I never, never um, set out to, to go there. I thought, you know, it's cool for the people that got in. You know, they really are, were special to the sport. And, you know, they put their time in, and they were good at what they did. And I look back now, and my name is in that group, and it's like, wow. It, it really came uh, really came to light on that Saturday when um, they inducted me, and I thought, 
I guess I worked hard and I never wanted it to pay off, you know, for fame and fortune. I just, I love what I do. Ask Ron. You know, well, okay well, was the, the fame like, part. I loved okay. The fame part you've you know? got covered. How's the fortune part working? Well, you know, <laughs> we all do this because we love it. Absolutely, it, it's a it's a great thing. You know, it's a great way to uh, meet friends. You know, it's a great way to live your life. I'd rather live my life as a racer than anything. You know, I w- always wanted to do what you did, Ron. And I tried it. You actually got me into a car, and I tried it. And you saw what happened. I'm not worth, you know, the five seconds that it took me to get down the front stretch. So <laughs> it's, uh, I, I know where I belong. And But uh, I, if it wasn't for guys like you, Ron, and, you know, millions of others that I've got to see in my career, I wouldn't have a career. So I owe it to the racers, and I owe it to the fans. You know, I'm just a part of the show. I'll never be the show. I don't want to be the show. Rick, I think you've heard my my uh, Larry Jewett story, he uh, he towed a race car over to my shop one day, same as you, wanted to race, and uh, he said, what do you think? I went in the shop, I grabbed a hammer, and I said, I want you to hit that bar right there, and half the roll cage fell apart. Ooh. So, so I taught Larry how to use a torch, and I told him to cut out everything that he didn't think looked good. I wound up putting an entire roll cage in the car. I can imagine. I, I want to only imagine. I want to know more about this. Uh, you were in a car once experience. Well, it was actually, I've been in like four or five different times. Uh, first time ever in a race car was when I was in the uh, service. I was in the Air Force and I was actually in an enduro, ran 90 of the 250 laps before the car caught fire. They couldn't put it out. They called the county fire department. And I made the police water. Um, ran my first ever enduro race in Michigan on pavement at Flat Rock. Started 52nd out of 132 cars and actually finished 16th and drove the car home. Nice. But then from there, uh, Toledo Speedway had an officials race one night, media and officials. And then it was street stocks on late model used tires on the fifth mile. And I had that thing hammered to the floor. And I got lapped, I think, three times in a 10-lap race. But then uh, Ron got me into a sportsman car at Oakshade and showed me how to run it. And, uh, well, I got out there, and I was hot lapping, and I think I was, I went five laps down in a three-lap hot lap session. So, yeah, <laughs> that's I, impressive. I know where I belong. Sportsman, though. That's Definitely, nice. yeah. I belong upstairs. There's no doubt. Rick, Matt Swander wants to know, can you make it from Montreal to Oakshade for opening ceremonies in a single day. Uh, it's happened so long ago. I think the statute of limitations has run out. So, so you're clear. I was working for a company in Michigan over by the airport in Detroit, which is Romulus, Michigan. And I had to deliver parts to Montreal, Quebec, Canada, to a Ford dealership there. Well, I'm good driving on 401 in Canada and all that getting through Detroit and everything. It's about 12 hours one way so i left you know in the morning on friday and got up there and stayed the night saturday morning got up i went from montreal back across the bridge to romulus michigan and then from there another two hours to oakshade in a total of 10 hours (laughs) oh my i i let's just say that the speed limit in miles per hour was 60 i doubled that the whole way 
So you're faster on the the streets than you are on the track. On, on, Much faster. On the Q, on the on the QEW in Canada, they are kind of lenient on speed. They were back in the '90s. Yeah, let's just put it that way. I was extremely lucky. Well, the the hundred kilometers per per hour speed limit up there, you could it's easily confused as to hundred miles an hour. Oh yeah, right? right. And that's kind of what I was going to use as an excuse to make it happen. I'm sure they've never heard that before. No, not I'm sure that's the first time. <laughs> Have you ever announced it at Flat Rock? We were talking about that a little bit. Oh yeah, before. that's where I started my career. Okay. Opening night of 1979, I got a chance. Announcer didn't show up, and they asked me. I gave them a Panasonic cassette tape of me practicing announcing, and I guess they liked it, and I tried it and did it, and it started from there. Very nice. So you and you started yeah. you started your Hall of Fame career uh, in the Southeast Michigan, Northwest Ohio area. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, started at Flat Rock. Got to do Toledo. You know. Got to announce that track here and there. I got to work for Jeff Jarvis at uh, Line the Land for a few years. I worked for Pam and Terry, John and Donna at Oakshade for seven great years. Uh, we thank them for that. And, of course, you know, Larry Baltus and or Larry Bowes and Earl Baltus gave me the chance in 2000. I got to do four years there. And, you know, the World of Outlaws World Racing Group is where I've been since. And, you know, I, I would trade none of it. It was all just so great. How many years have you been? My first ever dirt race, Scott. You have any idea where I announced my first dirt race? Uh, North Dakota, South Dakota. Uh, you, yeah, you cheated. Yeah, <laughs> I did. <laughs> it just so happened that when I was in the Air Force, I got there January 1st of 1982, and come to find out, my sergeant, who rest his soul, passed away a couple of years ago, he was a racer from Wisconsin. Well, you know, the track was in town 20 miles away, and I got on. I made sure I got on his crew, so we would come in from the missile field in time to go to the races every Friday night on time. Imagine that. That's that's pretty awesome. Yep, got to serve my country and announce my first dirt racing. So how long have you been uh, announcing with the World of Outlaws now? Since uh, 2004. Um, they started off in Has 2004, Beluga, and they didn't have an announcer and. I helped out the first six races, and then I jumped in on a race in uh, Volunteer Speedway in Tennessee in March. And finally, by July of '04, uh, Dean Miracle, who we all know, um, you know, said, you've got to come work for us. He kept working on me and working on me. I said, you know, let's do it. And it's been that way. Do you have a, a favorite uh, track that you've announced at, you know, maybe one that has, like, the, the most energetic crowd? Oh, there's, oh, God, there's so many. I mean. I'm putting you, you on the spot. At Grand Forks, North Dakota, obviously River City Speedway has a special place in my heart. Fairbury in Illinois is a fantastic track. I mean, that's just an awesome place to watch a race. You know, Davenport has got this great little quarter mile in Iowa that we go to. There's so many great tracks. Cedar Lake Speedway up in Wisconsin is another terrific track. Um, even Macon Speedway in Illinois, a little fifth mile. It's just, I love the bull ring. You give me any bull ring and I'm happy, but these big tracks have become something that um, I've learned to, I've learned to, let's say, find my niche. You know, the biggest track I had seen before coming, you know, out of the service was either Berlin or Toledo or Mount Clemens even. And now you start going to these big dirt tracks. It's like, wow. So yeah, 
they're all great. Don't get me wrong. I don't, I'm not slighting any of them, but I, I'm a boring guy. Have you ever announced on a mile dirt track? Oh, yeah. The Springfield Mile World of Outlaws were there. Okay, yeah. And that was a challenge because um, we were down on the front stretch. All you could see is a car coming out of turn four and 140 to 160 miles an hour down the straightaway. Yep. And when they got to one, you lost them for 30 seconds. And then they came back around. <laughs> it was interesting. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've run both Springfield and Syracuse. So uh, Yes, you have. A lot, lot of fun. What uh, um, I can't imagine, Ron, going that fast. Uh, from what I understood, you really had to um, shore up your fenders and all your braces because just the wind and the speed you guys carried down the straightaways just had to be impressive. Rick, the first time we were at Syracuse, uh, I came in after our first hot lap set, and the deck was all crumbled up. And uh, <laughs> in... in, in normal ornery Don fashion. He says, what the hell did you do to my race car? I can see that. Um, and that was where we, when we learned that you had to actually put extra support in the deck because it was creating so much downforce at those speeds that it literally crumbled the deck without touching anything. Yeah. I know all the guys on, especially on the front fenders had double bracing all the way through yep. and even on the doors and on the rear quarters, just because of the speed and the air that flowed. And yeah, I, I can't even imagine it. And I saw firsthand when you cut a tire on a mile track, you might as well just get ready to replace the whole side. <laughs> so how did you get uh, associated with dirt late models? I mean, you've called all kinds of different racing and then now you're, you're the dirt late model guy. I think I got spoiled when I was in North Dakota because they had four tenth sprints, dirt late models, and street stock. And I just thought that, you know, I grew up with late models at Flat Rock, late models at Figure Eight, late models at Figure Eight at Toledo. Same thing at Mount Clemens, um, all through Michigan, all through Ohio. And I loved the payment late models. Well, then when I got to Grand Forks and they had four tenth sprints, I thought they were cool. But the late models back then were wedge bodies. So they really look like Batmobiles, and that just got me excited. I love the way they looked, the way they drove, and I just I became a late model guy. That would have been back in the NDRA days. Uh, yeah, I mean, we're talking the early 80s is when I first went to my first uh, real dirt racing. I went to some with my father. He had taken me to a couple of dirt races, but I was really young, so I really got the appreciation once I uh, turned 20. Do you remember a guy around here named Dave Marco? Oh yeah. Whatever happened to him? I was oh, a little, I was a kid, and I remember going, and he used to win all the time, and then I moved away, and I don't know whatever well, happened. There's, to him. there's so many guys that I wonder, Scott. You know what happened <laughs> to like uh, Bob Sensaba? He was one of those okay. that I used to watch yep. when I was a kid, and uh, Mark Malkett. I've seen Brad over the past maybe ten years or so. Guys like that, uh, some of the guys growing up that were the big, uh, you know, late model guys in Ohio and Michigan, John Fallow, Glenn Galt, you know, just Roger Black, some of those guys. I wondered what's happened to them because, you know, you don't see them. The guys that I grew up with at Flat Rock, I hate to say it, but pretty much have all passed away. Uh, most of the heroes I had. So it's like, I don't even know if they're alive or not. So that what you said earlier that uh, you're in the Hall of Fame, it just means that you're getting old is, is accurate. Uh, well, yeah, there aren't too many um, young guys that have been inducted. So it, it, it's it's a, truly an honor, though. It's just amazing 
to be in there with some of the greatest drivers that have ever strapped into a dirt lane model, some of the greatest announcers, ever picked up a mic, promoters, chassis builders, engine builders. It's just, it's an amazing little place that uh, only a certain amount of people can say they're part of. All right. I got to ask you this. A lot of people don't know this, but when the mic is off and you're in the tower, you like to tell jokes. What is the, no, I've never told one. What is the worst <laughs> joke that you've ever told in the tower? Oh God. How much time do we have? <laughs> Just one. You don't have to have a long one. I've, I've had a lot of bad ones. Um, Oh boy. You talk about putting on the spot. There has been some really bad ones. I would have to say the one that I stole from Jack Pfeiffer. Um, oh it's only happened twice that I can remember at Oakshade. If I could have to you put know, in the, year they had the, if I could have to put in the Barney Oldfield race, remember? Okay. Okay. So it just so happened one night, um, they were running on one say they were running the bombers and a rabbit, come out of one of the fields and ran across the racetrack and Jack said, well, I guess next year we're going to have to have two races. And I said, well, what's the other one going to be? He says the bunny old field. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. That'll work. That'll Ch- work. Changing gears. Yep. <laughs> Dean, changing gears. Dean Henry says that Dave Marco owns a bar in Kelly's Island and he still lives in, in Genoa. Genoa. Okay. Wow. Good for him. That's awesome. Yeah. So are, are there any? I knew somebody would know. I knew somebody would. <laughs> are there any other achievements uh, that you would like uh, to check off uh, the list uh, in your announcing career before you you hang up the microphone or? or are yeah, you good? actually, um, there's one left that um, I don't know that it will happen because it is kind of, um, I guess, for the elite. But um, uh, UMP has the Bob Member Award. Hmm. And that is basically for a lifetime achievement of, you know, being in the sport of racing, especially with their car UMP and uh, some great guys have gotten that. I think uh, I'm way too young for that, but uh, I'm happy where I'm at. Totally happy. Awesome. So world of outlaws uh, this weekend, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Pennsylvania. Yeah. It's going to be interesting. We go from the big paperclip half mile of Williams Grove to the really fast bull ring of Sharon and then back to another big half mile paper clip at Tri-City Raceway Park. So it's going to be interesting to see how these guys can adapt to big track, small track, big track in a matter of three days. Who's uh, who's going to win the championship this year? Well, the odds on favor right now is Dennis Herb Jr. Over 100 point lead. But you ask him and you ask his crew chief, Heather Line, and they will tell you it ain't over until the points can't be passed. So right now he's in line. Tanner English is really coming on strong. He has been very consistent over the past couple of months. He's moved into second in the points. He's taken over the rookie point lead. And I would say it's between those two, but you're not going to count back Flair out because he's right there as well. So a three-car battle, basically, you got to give the edge Durb, and I would say just because of the experience of point racing. Okay. Now moving outside of just the world of outlaw, this is of all late model drivers right now. Who uh, do you think is the best uh, dirt late model driver in the country? Well, I mean, you're going to get an argument here. <laughs> half of the half of the country is going to say Jonathan Davenport hands down. The other half is going to say Chris Madden hands down. 
you can go either way with that. Both of them have amassed a lot of money won this year. They've got a lot of wins. There's a lot of could have been for Madden. There's a lot of could have been for Davenport. You can take your pick. You know, both of them have had a lot of wins this year. Tim McCready is on the way to winning another Lucas championship. I mean, he hasn't posted the big wins, but he has been Mr. Consistency. Mike Marler has been so consistent all year long. You know, if you go by wins, you go by the first two I mentioned. If you go by consistency, you can add a couple of more. I mean, the list could be 20 drivers by the time this is all said and done. And if you count raw talent, you can't, you can't eliminate Kyle Larson. You know how I can tell that you're a professional, Rick? You uh, uh, dance around it? Yes. You <laughs> dance around it and you give a – I ask for one driver, you give me a list of 20. Well, that's, that's, that's okay, though. Like last year, last year it was Brandon Overton, hands okay. down. Well, it seems and like we're Brandon talking Shepard. about it – sounds. it seems like we're talking about Davenport winning two or three races every weekend at least for the past well, month. Well, I mean, he's, he just wins and wins and wins. And, you know, every driver will tell you, as long as you are on a streak, go with it. Don't think about it. Just enjoy it because it can go away just as quick as it came. Rick, and maybe, I think may, drivers like to live by that. Maybe you would know how much money has he won this year? Uh, right in the ballpark of $1.6 I'm in the wrong profession. Woo! What am I doing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We only make half that, so it's not bad, Scott. Oh, you know. Jeez. Well. Almost as much as Miller makes. Yeah, Almost as that's much. That's the one. That's the one. Yeah, he's won uh, right around $1.6 so far in winnings. That's that's. And there's still big, 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 big paying races left to go. Oh, yeah. Some of the fall specials pay, yeah, huge money. Well, Davenport got a chance to win 50000 next weekend with the World of Outlaws when it comes to Davenport because we have a 10, a 10, and a 30 at the Quad Cities 150 at Davenport Speedway next weekend, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. So that could be another fifty grand right there. Chump, you, chump change. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah. This, this is making me more depressed. I, I can't even imagine. I can't imagine getting checked like that. But well, that's why he does what he does. That's what I why I do what I do, and I appreciate what I do, and I appreciate what he does. Is is he in the Dirt Late Model Hall of Fame? No, too young. Hasn't no. been in it long. You're enough. in it though, so you have that going. There we go. Yeah, there we go. That's that's what you. I want you to when you're in your uh, victory lane interviews, ask them. Uh, you know, if they start getting cocky, say, well, "Are you in the National Dirt Late Model Hall of Fame?" You know what? I, this is going to sound really odd, Scott. And you're going to have to sit back and think about this before you respond. But if I had a chance to be Scott Bloomquist, Billy Moyer, Jonathan Davenport, Chris Madden, um, Brandon Overton, if I could be any of those and exchange careers and money won and status, I wouldn't do it. I like what I've done. I like what I do. I like what I continue to do. And the money and the fame can't top the feeling I have and the satisfaction I have from what I do. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade it for the millions they've won, the hundreds of races they've won, all the fame that they've gotten. I wouldn't trade what I do because I work for a great company. I enjoy what I do. I've enjoyed what I've done since I was 17, and I don't know anything else. And you're in victory lane uh, pretty much every night. Well, that's changed. 
Has I it? am strictly the booth. I'm the oh, booth guy now. Right. We have paper reporters. We're doing we have TV paper reporters that are way better looking than me and do a way better job than I do. I was noticing that. What, uh, better looking? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Than you. No, um, with Dirt Vision has got a great plan. Um, they have different voices in every aspect of the broadcast, and they really brought um, dirt racing to the forefront when it comes to online and subscription broadcasting. I mean, they do a great job with it, and we all have our part. And we all interact. We're just one big puzzle where the pieces come together every night. So let me ask you this. This is something, as an announcer, I've been kind of pondering. Uh, when you're calling a race, are you concentrating more on the fans that are in attendance in the stands, or are you kind of calling it as you would for people watching it on a, a broadcast? You basically have to mix it, Scott. You have to be able to get the attention of both. You have to get that person that's at home that could turn you off in, you know, one click. And you also have to get the attention of that person that's sitting in the stands that might be ready to go if they don't like what they hear. So it's like you really have to balance it. And you can do that by we're, we're fortunate enough to have monitors so that we can call all different action all over the place with or without the monitor. You know, we all do that. But for the fan at home, if the monitor is focusing on a good battle for third, I'll jump from the leader to that battle for third. And then all of a sudden the fans in the stands like, well, wait a minute, what's going on for third? We were watching the leader. You know how it goes in the stands. Sometimes you miss stuff. So it's a good balance that bounces back and forth. And that, that makes, I guess that gives me more to talk about than just calling a race, which I don't ever want to just call a race. I want to, you know, I want to bring the, I want to bring the excitement to it. So it's it's a very big balance. So it's got to make it a, you know, a you little more challenging. I've always I've always pondered something too. Maybe you can help me. Okay. Why do they call them apartments when they're all joined together? I, I'm going to defer to uh, to Ron on that, but that's that's good. Uh, they're apart. It's above my pay grade. <laughs> yeah. That they should be together, mints. Uh, exactly, and they, why do they call them buildings if they're already built? These are the, the, the Rickisms that I remember now. There you go. <laughs> All right, Rick. Well, we got to let you go, and uh, we appreciate the time. Good luck. Uh, well, I, I guess you don't need good luck. Have fun this weekend. And, uh, Absolutely. Look, uh, looking forward to sometime seeing you pop into the booth at, at Oakshade unexpectedly like you do every once in a while, every few years. Guaranteed I'll have a crowd dog in my hand. There you go. Yeah, well, one of our listeners wondered which is more valuable. Um Higher pay or free trips to the snack bar? Oh, so they heard. Did it? Did yep. you ever know about that, Scott? Uh, it sounds familiar to me. First year, and I think Miller will attest to this. First year I worked there, Pam said, we'll pay you $55 a night, and you can go to the snack bar all you want. I said, great. Year two comes around. She says, we're going to give you a raise. I'm like, oh, that's awesome. She said, we're going to pay you 75 a night. And you get one trip to the snack bar. <laughs> <laughs> I think Oakshade was in the red the first year I worked for him. How many trips did you make uh, to the snack bar on an average night that first year? Uh, I can almost attest to probably three crowd dogs and a big O burger, if, if nothing else. <laughs> now, did you actually make the trip, or did you send someone down for you? Because I oh heck no, I went down there. Are you kidding me? Oh, I figured you had to be busy. Well, I mean, then it's like race was, after so. race after race. No, I mean he's busy calling races. When do you get a break? Uh, you got to be good at it, Scott. 
That's impressive. That's why you are in the Hall of Fame and I am not. There it is. <laughs> <laughs> two two words, Scott. Track prep. There you go. Well, congratulations, hey, Rick. God. It's uh, always great talking to you. Thanks, God. Good to talk to you, buddy. And Miller, good to talk to you too, bud. Always good. Thanks a lot, Rick. Okay, thank you, guys. You guys take care. You too. We'll see you. See ya. Hi, listeners. We wanted to take a moment to tell you about another podcast from Evergreen Podcasts and Sound Talent Media called Pit Lane Parlay. Pit Lane Parlay is the go-to podcast for IndyCar and motorsports-related news. Each episode, we discuss things like our favorite drivers, news clips from the last week, and generally giving each other a hard time about predictions we've made in the past and or life stories that have come up recently. We really have a lot of fun with it and really enjoy each other's company, and we hope you can come join us too. Join Pit Lane Parlay by following us on your favorite podcast today.